Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. Hi, it's Alex. Welcome to the podcast. In this episode, I discuss the digital divide with a panel of guests, including Chris Rothwell, Director of Education at Microsoft, Sebastian Chaplow, Head Teacher and Community Organiser with Citizens UK, Kelly Loftus, Director of External Relations at Teach First, and CFUI's own Chief Executive, Lloyd Menzies. We explore the gap in access to technology, how it is affecting teaching and learning, and how different stakeholders can offer support. The conversation follows the launch of Microsoft and CFUI's report, The Digital Divide, Closing the Achievement Gap in the Connected Classroom, which included findings from a TeacherTap survey for example, that just 1% of primary state schools provides devices that their pupils can take home, compared to 38% of private primary schools. Find the report on the CFUI website, and I hope you enjoy listening. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. Hello everyone, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like it if we could go round and do a few introductions. So perhaps we could start with Chris. Yeah, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Chris Rothwell and I'm the uh, Director of Education at Microsoft here in the UK. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us, Chris. And Seb? Hi, good morning everyone. My name is Sebastian Chaplow and I'm a community organiser with Citizens UK as well as a head teacher. Thank you for joining us, Seb. And Kelly? Hi everyone, I'm Kelly Loftus. I'm the Director of External Relations at Education Charity Teach First, and we are developing teachers and leaders in schools where they're needed most to build a fair education for all. Wonderful, great to have you with us, Kelly. And last but absolutely not least, we've got Loic. Hi there, I am Loic, and I'm the Chief Executive at the Think and Action Tank, the Centre for Education and Youth. Brilliant, our listeners will be familiar with Loic's voice from past episodes. Thank you all very much for joining us today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the digital divide. It's a topic that's been on lots of people's minds recently with all of the challenges we faced since the coronavirus pandemic began last year. Loic, if we could start off by just telling us a little bit about the digital divide and what we mean by the term. Do we know how much of an issue it is at the moment and what sort of um, challenges it's presenting? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in this context, what we mean by the digital divide is the inequality in access uh, to both devices and internet uh, that's currently and has done for a long time, but in a less high profile way, stood in the way of young people's learning. Uh, so it's those inequalities um, in, in accessing those tools that people need in, it, in order to learn in the current context. And um, we have got some good information about the issue. We've had lots of different bits of data that have come out over the over the course of the last year, partly in, in the report we did with Microsoft, but also more recently in a Sutton Trust report. So perhaps you know, one of the most dramatic ways of setting out how big that the scale of that divide is, is to look at um, the differences between state schools and private schools. So, for example, the proportion of teachers uh, who say that all their pupils have got access to a device in, in state schools is only 5%, whereas in private schools it's 54%, according to the, to the latest data from Southern Trust. So that's a huge difference, uh, you know, nearly 50 percentage points. And 
And one of the worst things about that is that it actually seems that that gap has widened. So whereas in March 2020, the figures were 4% and 42%, we're now on 5 and 54 So it's, it's really striking. Um, and you see that um, not just in the difference between state and private, but also even within the more disadvantaged and less disadvantaged state schools. And, and, and so it's obviously an issue that's, that's really limiting uh, some young people's access to learning at the moment. Mm, yes, it's certainly a really worrying situation, and I think it's it's presented a lot of challenges for a lot of families. We noticed that uh, that Sutton Trust report found that 19% of parents overall reported that their children didn't have access to a sufficient number of devices for online learning, um, and that was 35% for households with the lowest incomes. So there's a huge barrier there for, for a lot of families that's presented a lot of challenges this year. Chris, if I could come to you now... Why is Microsoft interested in this problem in particular and what's its significance for your work? I mean, I suppose at its core, Microsoft is a technology company. And, and so we see and believe in, in the potential for technology to have like incredible positive impact in people's lives. And, and then if you sort of start to think about the fact that not everybody is getting to benefit from that, that, that's a big problem in terms of how technology helps everybody, you know, raise up and, and get access to all of the potential. And I think probably for all of us that, that are as part of this recording, and it, you know, think about all the things that technology do for us in our lives, in the way that they help us discover information, they entertain us, they help us communicate, they help us learn. Like it, it's increasingly an intrinsic part of, of how we live our lives, how we work with others, how we share, how we learn. And, and of course, as a result of the pandemic, that's just been amplified significantly. And, and then specifically within education, I think the pandemic has also then shown that the, the, the education sector and schools particularly play just such an important role as a social leveler. And, and when schools are not there able to play that role and, and where schools have been closed in the pandemic, it has really exacerbated and highlighted the fact that, that not all families have equal access and that that you know is is then a huge problem in the in the loss of learning that those people experience, and so if we're serious about technology helping people to you know fulfil their full potential and go on and, and have the right skills for employment and life, you know in the long term, then absolutely we want to be thinking about how we help make sure that the technology that we build and that others are building gets to reach uh, all of the people that can benefit from it, not just those that can can afford it today. Yes, it has the power to be really transformative, doesn't it? If if the access is there, I think it can make a huge difference. And I think um, as a former teacher myself, I can think of a number of ways where technology has really kind of invigorated learning. Dealing with this core issue of, of access is really important. Look, if I just come back to you briefly, um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about how the situation is changing at present? and whether we're seeing any sort of shift in, in, in the trends. Yeah. So, I mean, after uh, nearly a year in, uh, you, might, you might hope that some of these issues are being, are being tackled and, and improving. But uh, as I said, the, the gap has actually, actually seems to be widening, and which seems surprising when in a context when we, we were told that the government made a pledge of delivering about 1.3 million devices. And it, it looks like only around uh, 800 to 900,000 of those have been, uh, have been delivered. And when you look at those stats from the Sutton Trust, what's weird is you really see that gap widening. And actually, uh, the proportion of schools who are saying that one fifth of their pupils lack devices has actually increased, which is weird because it doesn't seem to make sense that more people would be lacking them. What seems to be 
done is that um, the need for devices has actually increased recently because it's now become much more of a norm to be delivering uh, live lessons. Um, and so that need is being felt much more. And on top of that, it seems that the original need was underestimated. So, for example, there, there was a, initially the government was assuming that schools would be able to supply a certain number of devices. And also they were using uh, statistics for, uh, from Ofcom about access to devices, which were actually based on household access to device rather than individual access. And it's become very quickly clear that you really need to be having the kind of one-to-one -one access to the devices uh, for it to work. And so it's just played out in, the, in this pattern whereby, whereby Schools Week have estimated that only about 60% of the, the needed devices have been provided. And then that, that's um, really varying from school to school and from trust to trust. It seems that one of the largest multi-academy trusts has actually spent more on devices itself uh, than the government has as a whole. And um, so you're starting to get an additional divide, uh, not just based on, on a family socioeconomic background, but also uh, depending on, on the school and, it, and the, the fortunes uh, of, of that particular school. Mm, that's a real issue, isn't it? And uh, I think it's great that schools are stepping in where they can to, to provide that sort of support. But ultimately, it's, that's not necessarily something that should be down to them. And, and as you say, it has a, a risk there of, of further widening that gap and that sort of lottery for young people based on what their school is able to offer. I'll, um, I'll come to Seb and Kelly now. Um, thanks both for joining us. You're both working uh, with teachers and communities in the youth sector. What can you tell us about the kinds of challenges that Chris and Loic have described and how they're affecting young people? You know, as Loic and Chris explained, you know, the, this is nothing new. You know, we, we knew this was an issue for, you know, for young people in our mm. communities. Uh, and what the pandemic has shown is that, you know, there was a crack and the crack was certainly there before the pandemic. And it's, you know, it's made it even more visible. So the two key things that obviously we've been focusing on, you know, throughout the pandemic is access to devices and access to data. It's fair to say that schools have had to learn fast uh, and many schools have really stepped up in terms of their online provision, uh, also, you know, delivering devices to, to their families. But as Luke just said, what we've also seen is that some schools and some multi-academy trusts have been able to help. Uh, and we're talking about the large multi-academy trust across the country. But those schools working on their own, uh, potentially, and, and, and often in more rural areas, have really struggled uh, because they haven't had the support of, of, a, of a wider system, of a wider uh, network of support. Uh, and sometimes schools in under local authority control uh, have also really, really struggled. So th there's been a disparity between, you know, as Luke explained, between the trusts and the schools uh, that have had the, capacity, the internal capacity to help uh, and those that haven't. Mm, that's really worrying, isn't it? Um, and I think uh, we've we've seen sort of those rural schools struggling in lots of different ways as well. So it's it's not um, not good news to hear that this is an extra burden for them. It can be tough when you're when you're a little bit more isolated. Kelly, what what would you like to add? Yeah, so I think um, there's also challenges even within households, and that's something that we're increasingly becoming aware of at Teach First, particularly with this lockdown. So I think earlier on, schools were obviously kind of, you know, under great pressure to get up and running and online run learning running themselves um, and had to figure out how to make all of that work. And this time around, what's really brilliant is I think we're seeing that schools are really ready for that this time. School days are mirroring much more closely to what you'd see on an actual school site from home, which is really impressive what schools are doing there. But what it means is I think teachers are noticing much more quickly this time yes. some of the real challenges and where there are gaps in provision where children can't access 
um, learning digitally. And we're hearing examples of things like, I was speaking to a head teacher earlier this week who was saying that it's only recently come to light that there's a family of five where there's two devices in that household, two parents working, you know, a few kids, who do you pick gets access to those devices during the day to study? So there's real gaps even within individual households. And I think this is part of the reason it's starting to come to light that the challenge might be bigger than even teachers realised. That's becoming more, more visible over time. You know, I fundamentally believe every parent is doing the best they can for their kids and wants to provide for their kids. And actually, there's probably a fair bit of stigma around this if you're not able to do that yourself. And so I think that's a really significant issue because, of course, a child might be showing up in a lesson, but that doesn't mean that they've got access to that device to study from home for the rest of the day. Um, so I think it is to to some extent a slightly hidden issue as well, actually, that it will kind of um, increasingly come to the fore and we'll understand more about over time. And then, of course, you know, we know if parents are perhaps um, losing jobs or facing issues around that, if kit breaks, uh, there might be less money available um, to deal with that over time as well, which is another challenge that needs to be considered. So I think that's really significant. Um, and I do think the government scheme is significantly helping, you know, many more children um, get access than what they had a year ago. This, you know, wasn't a responsibility of the government in the same way that it is now. Um, a year ago, I think really important steps are being taken there. But um, this problem is huge. And I think this presents a real opportunity for everyone across society to come together and show the potential of um, what can be done when we use technology well. Um, and I think it raises some interesting questions around, you know, do we need to consider digital access as a utility in the same way that we might do gas or electric for, for a modern world? That's an excellent point. Yes, I think that that's increasingly becoming um, the situation, isn't it? I think it's it's so difficult to do just very basic things when you're um, unable to, to uh, connect to the Internet at home or to have that opportunity to, to be connected to the outside world. I can very um, much recognise that issue just trying to uh, communicate with my grandparents in lockdown, for example. <laughs> <laughs> just ordering the shopping is a huge challenge. So we certainly have seen things change over the past year. And um, we've seen a move to, as Kelly says, lots more online lessons and, and an increase in the intensity of online learning, which does sort of uh, create sort of different challenges as, as well as being, being positive for a lot of young people. Chris, would you like to comment on how things have changed across the, the last year? Yeah, I was going to make a very similar point, really, Alex. I think um, you know this current school closure period, I think, is both highlighting how how far we've come, but also highlighting, as Loic and Seb and, and, and others have commented, like just how much further we've got to go. And I think if you think back to March, when schools initially closed, a, a lot of remote learning that was taking place was was very, very basic or not really happening at all. And the fact that we're now in a position where the adoption of technology and, and the various platforms available means that we are teaching significant amount of live lessons, issuing homework, marking in, in almost real time in some cases. And that's become like very normal across the sector. That's incredible progress and just what an incredible effort from, from the schools, the teachers and the leaders involved. But then it has shown that spotlight on like, actually, if you don't have enough devices in your house, not just only if you don't have a device or you don't have connectivity, but if you don't have enough for the number of people that are trying to work and learn there, then it's made that much a much starker issue. And so it sort of is both saying, you know, well done, we've made incredible progress, but also, okay, actually, this is a much bigger longer term problem that we're going to need to take on. 
yes, it's being able to keep up with that progress, isn't it? It's great that schools are able to kind of offer a whole new form of learning. But um, if there's challenges accessing it, then it's uh, still a problem for, for many young people. But hopefully we are moving forward at least. As people will know, at CFEY, we're, we're a think and action tank. And one of the things that Microsoft's report um, that we recently published flagged was the role of different stakeholders in tackling this issue. Chris, if I can come to you again, what kind of role do you think different stakeholders such as the government, corporates, schools and civil society more widely could take in, in supporting this issue? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a hard problem. And, and I think it's it's a hard problem, particularly right now, because we're trying to make really rapid progress in very, very challenging times. Um, but there's no doubt this is a team sport. And so kind of every every constituent part of, of society needs to sort of think about their role. I also think that there's, there's sort of two, at least two phases to this, that maybe there's more, but, but there's definitely a, a phase of work that needs to happen about now. You know, schools are closed, and how do we get devices and connectivity and access to children and families that, that don't have it at home? And, and that's a kind of hopefully a, a pretty short-term problem. Um, and, and how do we help those individuals right now? And that's probably a different set of constituent parts that, that need to help or can help in that short term versus longer term. And, and particularly in the face that you know, global demand for laptops and devices has just exploded to the extent that getting enough devices is really problematic. And so getting enough in, into the country in order to meet the demand and the, is, is actually not, not true, proving to be possible. And so I think short term, it's gonna, it has to be about how existing devices are loaned, donated, refurbished. Um, and I think it's kind of one of the areas where we've seen the advantage of, of schools that have really made big adoptions of, of cloud software, like Microsoft Teams in our case. But really, any web browser gets you into that. And so we've seen a lot of really um, you know, interesting examples of people accessing their learning through a smart TV or an Xbox or on a Raspberry Pi and those sorts of devices that, that they might have that, that is giving them at least access to the learning, even if it's not kind of a full laptop device that they would desire really to be able to do kind of rich content creation and things like that. So that's sort of like the initial short-term response. But I, I think there is something about the next phase, which is probably a different set of challenges that's about making sure that this becomes a really sustainable long-term part of, of how people access, either through schools or through you know, their own home. And, and it, that does need investment and it needs creativity and thinking about different financial models, different devices, different software options, and how do all of those come together to mean that, that this is just a part of how people access information through, through schools at home and they don't have that kind of lost learning or that lost opportunity, um, and that digital divide gets closed over time. Mm, that's a really interesting point, Chris. Yes, there's a lot of um, solutions there just in kind of creativity, isn't there, in terms of thinking about what have I got and how can I make use of it, and thinking outside the box in terms of how, how we communicate through the things that are available to us. And hopefully we will see things continue to move forward as we go through this year. I'd like to come to you now, Seb. You've been really active in mobilising civil society on this issue. What have been the kind of standout approaches that you've seen people taking? Um, and what more do you think could be done in the long term? Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll build on what Chris just said in terms of, you know, it, it being a, a team sport. I think that, that's the phrase Chris, Chris used. Um, and I think it's fair to say that a healthy society is one where there's a, a good balance between the state sector, the private sector and civil society. At the moment, that's not the case. You know, the civil society sector is the one that seems to be lagging behind because it's, it's often sort of uh, left to the side. Uh, so what we've seen in terms of, you know, good practice is when 
you know, the state has worked closely with the private sector uh, to support civil society. And, 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 you know, and when all these partners have worked, you know, through a collect, almost through a collective effort, you know, faith organizations, schools working together to, you know, reach out to private businesses, uh, private businesses, you know, donating laptops, donating devices. Um, that, that's when things work well, you know, when, when that balance is, is established. Uh, what we've seen, for instance, in London is um, uh, some organizations we work with around the, uh, the tech roundabout or the, you know, the Silicon roundabout, uh, faith organizations, schools, charitable organizations coming together to, to reach out to, you know, to big, you know, companies like, you know, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, to, you know, to try and get some support from them. And, that, and that's led, you know, to some partnerships which have led to, you know, devices being donated and, and so on. And that's, that's really good. And we've also seen that, you know, like the BT Open Zone uh, network um, has been opened up to, you know, to some platforms like the, you know, Oak National Academy uh, and BBC Bite Size. Again, that's the private sector stepping in saying, you know, we're going to do our, our bit to, to, help, uh, to help schools. Um, I, I guess the, the key thing for me, well, two key things is that as well as, you know, being able to support schools at a superficial level, I would say, which is good, you know, it's useful to get devices and, and be, be able to access data. But what we can't ignore is that there are some root causes that would need to be dealt with as well, you know, some systemic uh, structural causes. Uh, you know, poverty is effectively the issue that we're talking about here. You know, the fact that parents and families can't buy devices or can't access data is because they're poor. Uh, so therefore, you know, asking big companies to do their fair, um, to pay their fair share in terms of you know paying the living wage, for instance, uh, is something that would address you know the, these issues of of systemic um, poverty. Some big companies like Google do pay the living wage, and that arguably means that their you know their low wage workers you know are able to buy laptops for their children. But some other companies um, aren't paying the living wage, so perhaps you know this is something to look into. F final thing I will say on this is that some private sector, state sector, civil society partnerships have worked well in areas where some maps are well established. So we, you know, we've done some some work in the Greater Manchester area, where some multi-academy trusts have been able to to build those relationships quite easily. But going back to my first point earlier, in terms of smaller schools in in perhaps you know more uh, rural areas which aren't part of networks of support, they've not been able to build to build those partnerships because they don't have the capacity to do that. So I think there's something to be said about you know larger trusts or you know larger companies you know stepping in areas where perhaps the, the, the networks of support aren't existing um, so that, you know, it's not just the big trust and the big uh, cities that, that get the benefit, uh, but also um, smaller ones. Yes, that's an excellent point. I think that opportunity for sort of collaboration and support of others, you know, maybe whether, whether it's in the local area or, or through other kind of connections is really, really valuable. I've seen examples in the past of, of some great work where uh, larger trusts have su supported smaller trusts or smaller schools. And so um, the more they can step up to do that in this situation, the better. If I may, you know, just, just say, you know, what, what one of the arguments we make is that, you know, if you look at geographical areas, you know, if, if clear partnerships could be established between the local authorities, the, you know, private sector organisations in the, on the same patch, and the civil society organizations on the same patch, then it becomes a zone where everybody takes responsibility for what happens in that particular part of their, you know, of their region or, or their city. So it, it becomes a, you know, every child, you know, in the zone where we work or we're established, you know, becomes our responsibility. And it's not just for the state to lead on it. It's not just for the private sector to lead on it or the schools to lead on it. It becomes a shared enterprise uh, where, you know, common goals and, and common directions are, are established.
Mm, that's an excellent point. Yes, um, I love that idea. And I think um, it's got so much potential there, hasn't it, in terms of what you're then able to share in, in, in terms of your resources, your experience, your, uh, your manpower. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's all kind of multiplied by that collaboration. Fantastic. I'd like to come to you again, Kelly, please. In November, TeachFirst uh, asked the government to increase the number of devices that they're providing to pupils in schools. And this has been quite a controversial topic um, over the last year. What progress do you think is, is really being made on this front? Yeah, so I, I do think significant progress is being made um, by the government. Like I mentioned earlier, their target of getting to 1.3 million devices specifically um, distributed. And I think there are nearly a million now that have been. Um, and, you know, kind of connecting back to that point I was making earlier, I think if you think about kids sharing in a household, that's probably making a difference for a couple of million kids right now. So I think that is really significant um, and an impressive effort, particularly when you think about the fact right across the globe, there are so many more people who have adjusted to being from home and the demand that places on this kit to be accessible at speed um, is huge. There's frankly been shortages of some of this stuff. So I do think that's um, really positive progress. And I have to say from the schools that we're working with in the poorest areas, on the whole, they're really impressed with what they're getting and they're happy with it. And I think a significant number have been delivered um, even since the, the new year. And that is kind of really positive to see. But the fact remains, there's still not nearly enough. And there's still a long way to go. And I think something that's really interesting to me is the fact that right now, in many of the schools that we're working with, there's lots of pupils in school on site even though we're kind of in the midst of a national lockdown, because one of the reasons that class issue is vulnerable and being able to go to school is not having digital access at home. And I think that's really interesting, because what does that say about where we go from here and what the future looks like? And I think the government e efforts on kind of addressing this issue in the short term are commendable. And I think, yes, there were teething issues at the start. And I think, you know, some of the action wasn't quick enough. But I have to say, like, truly, teachers seem to be um, on the whole, really pleased with what's been happening in more recent months. I think that's good. But beyond this, where do we go next if we class a pupil as vulnerable if they don't have that digital access at home? Because what does it mean for homework? What does it mean for your coursework? What does it mean for your studies outside of the school site um, for the years ahead and the rest of your education? And I think that's where I start to think, you know, does this go beyond just the Department for Education? Does this now become a government responsibility that people need digital access to get on in life, frankly? Because it seems like it's heading that way. And I just think, you know, as you were saying earlier about, um, you know, all of us can't really get on with our daily lives without this. That's not really any different for young people growing up today. And if we want them to be able to access top jobs in the future, um, then we need to be getting them to be digitally savvy now and get the most out of their education now. I think it's the long-term stuff that we need to be turning our attention to now. Mm, that's an excellent point. I think it can be really easy to kind of fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, the, the generation in school now have grown up with technology, so they're all really confident with it and, and they know much more than um, the rest of us do. But actually, that, that's not true for everyone. And um, the need to to use technology, I think I think you're absolutely right. Just increases as as you um, move to to further or higher education and and into jobs as well. So those young people who are on the back foot with that when they're at school are are certainly going to be in a, a, at a disadvantage in the longer term. 
Mm, mm, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Now, in taking action on these kind of issues, it's always important to make sure that that we're taking the right action. Um, Loic, you wrote about the digital divide and, and Microsoft's report in Schools Week recently and warned about um, lessons that can be learned from previous attempts to roll out hardware. Can you tell us a bit more about what we can learn learn from history here to make sure that we're progressing in the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was... Um... It was funny writing that piece. I was reflecting back to um, to being in the classroom and some of the white elephant technology that sat, sat around in school, not not being used properly, but which had been funded and delivered, um, but then hadn't proved to meet teachers' needs. And I was thinking about what do we do now to make sure that's not the case? Because we're not just looking at a short term. Well, we are. We need. We have a short term problem to solve, but we've been turning, as Kelly said, turning our minds to the longer run. And if we want, if we want to provide schools and pupils with with something that's going to be valuable in the longer term, we need to make sure it's the right thing. So one of the good things about the Microsoft report was that it actually asked teachers what they wanted and what they needed and what their concerns were. Um, and it was really interesting to see the, how appetite for technology and for different types of technology uh, varied between teachers and subjects and phases. So, for example. Uh, really interesting how much appetite there was for, for device access amongst primary school teachers um, compared to secondary school teachers. So more more desire for it at primary level. Similarly across subjects, uh, art teachers seeing a really big need for technology, uh, some other teachers seeing less of a need. Um, so you know, digging into those trends and trying to understand what what teachers need to support them in delivering a great education is crucial. And similarly, the, the concerns. So we saw that um, a large number of teachers were, were really worried about uh, the risk of breakages, um, uh, concerns about safeguarding, for example. So if we, if, we, if we don't address those problems, then there's a risk that we, we launch an, a, new, uh, a new set of white elephant um, technologies on schools. So instead, we need to be listening to those concerns and making sure that what we provide schools with is, is something that meets their needs and, and overcomes those concerns. Absolutely. That is so important, isn't it? And I think it's one of the kind of long-term um, complaints made about the world of ed tech is, is the kind of proliferation of options and, and the fact that sometimes they're just not, not quite right when it comes to their practical use in the classroom or that there's maybe not enough kind of training on how to use them. And, and, and I can certainly think of... Yeah, yeah, training came up a lot too. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's got to be mapped in there and provided if, if we want people to use it well. Completely, yes. I can think of it, uh, examples from my own experience of teaching. And, you know, when you consider things like uh, the resources and the technology that young people with special educational needs use as well, training there for supporting the young people to use that kind of equipment is, is, um, is a great example of how... If you're if you're not confident in in supporting the young person with the device, then the device becomes uh, kind of obsolete really quickly. So we certainly need to make sure that we're getting the right things and that they're being used in the right ways. Does this kind of challenge resonate with the rest of you? Is 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 this something you've seen before? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely at Teach First. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me how many teachers are struggling with the same problems up and down the country. Um, and I think digital access is uh, just the same on that. And I think. In most workplaces, certainly something that I take for granted at Teach First, you know, if I'm having a struggle, I call up our technology team and they talk me through it and I don't have to be an expert on everything. In many schools, um, you know, we've probably got thousands of teachers dealing with the same problems every day and kind of not using things 
as efficiently or as well as they might be able to. So I think support for teachers to get the most out of um, any kind of hardware is going to be really, really important. Yes, absolutely. We can't we can't always be going to the ICT department for uh, for every single lesson that we need help with. And wider training is so important to make sure everyone feels comfortable and, and can really make the most of all the options available to them. Chris, I'd like to come to you again. Uh, it's, re it's really great to hear that Microsoft took the chance to actually ask teachers what they felt they needed and, and really make the most of their feedback. What did you learn from that and, and how is Microsoft responding to the findings? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Loic put it really nicely when he said, you know, teachers, they're crucial. Right? I mean, that's an obvious statement to make, but they're kind of at the front line experiencing this all the time. And so how they really feel about all of this is, is such a, you know, a, a barometer of ultimately whether it's really working or not. Um, and I think we learned quite a lot. I, I would echo Loic's comment around the uh, surprised me a little bit about the variation of what teachers wanted by key stage and mm. by subject. That was perhaps um, something that I wouldn't necessarily have expected. But I think probably the biggest thing for us that we learned that we're sort of then thinking about what we do differently is, is hearing what teachers see as the positives of technology. And there was a lot about creating you know, independent learning, you know, future employment skills, accessibility, collaboration, those sorts of things. But then also hearing about what their concerns are you know, about device access, about supporting breakages, about supporting SEND pupils, lack of FaceTime, workload, those mm. sorts of things. And, it, and it's interesting that some of those things that the teachers are saying, oh, actually, we see these as a worry. We would think, actually, we know that technology yes. can help there. You know, as an example about the, you know, the accessibility of software that helps children with different learning needs, like that's a really, really good, strong area that technology can have really um, profound impact. But it makes me think, you know, we actually had this conversation within my team this week around, you know, where we are today is so different from where we were a year ago. It's changed so dramatically. You know, um, in, in March and April last year, we were getting a lot of very basic questions about, you know, what technology is and what it does and mm. how do you access it. Now we're getting a lot of questions that are about, like, which tool is best to teach these kind of things to these mm. kind of children? You know, much more into, you know, thinking about teaching and learning and then also thinking about automation and data and student voice and some of these areas. So I think that's kind of making us think differently about where, what do we need to do next in terms of you know, communicating to schools and particularly to teachers and, and, and on that topic of professional development. Like the sector is, has just had like a year-long crash course in how to use this stuff. Um, and, and I think in a lot of cases, they've sort of said, oh, that's just not bad. Like, you know, that's been much more useful than I thought. And, and we kind of had to do it. But I think that, you know, we need to continue that. And, and, and there's a lot more that technology is able to do. And as you think about getting, you know, that, that kind of integration and automation that means some of the manual stuff you had to do goes away, that's really, really uh, powerful. But I think we, you know, we're able now to have slightly more sophisticated conversations generally about what technology can do beyond where we've got to now, which is just like this incredible progress over the last 12 months. Yes, and th that's really exciting, isn't it? I think um, there are so many brilliant things that you can do with technology to really enhance the way that you teach. And um, I think the danger is, is that, um, you know, in the day-to-day -day kind of routine, we know that teachers are so busy that they, they've been so under the cosh for for, for many years in terms of, of workload. And um, that can mean that the, the kind of willingness to experiment and learn new things and try new things um, is a bit on the back burner, really. But exactly as you say, Chris, this year has been a kind of a, a, a spur to just get out there and get going with some of this technology in a way that maybe um, 
lots of people in the classroom just wouldn't have, have kind of been able to fit in before. And, and hopefully that's going to lead to some really, really exciting developments. And I think we've already seen some incredible achievements. Just looking at lessons recorded with the uh, Oak National Academy, for example, there's some really, really exciting things happening and um, lovely ways of, of learning for, for young people that are, are so kind of original and, and different. And it'll be exciting to see how that goes forward and, and what, what teachers can do to as you say, both kind of invigorate their, their teaching, but also kind of lighten the load in other ways in terms of the way that they're dealing with um, some of the kind of more um, heavy admin tasks that can take up a lot of their time too. So I, I would I would totally echo that. I, I think some of the creativity that we've seen across the sector has just been in, like in, inspirational. Like it's been awesome. You know, some of the things that you would think, oh, well, that's probably going to be hard with technology. Like teachers have somehow yeah. found a way. And they brought such such an incredible kind of um, creativity and invention to how they've been using technology to to support their specific students and, and pupils in their context. And so I think you know as, as we think about emerging from the situation of school closures and, and the lockdown, I think the potential to fuse that with all that's good about being in the classroom, I think, is incredibly exciting. Absolutely, I, I completely agree. Um, thank you very much. That's really helpful. Um, You've all raised some really excellent points here and some really important issues for us to talk through. Uh, and it's great to hear that actually, you know, the atmosphere going forward is full of potential and um, and, and there's so much to celebrate. Um, before we finish this episode of the podcast, I'd like to uh, to come to each of you one by one to ask what your one message would be to either government, business, schools or the third sector about this really important issue and to get an idea of what kind of developments you're hoping to see going forward. Perhaps we could start with Seb. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think it's really useful to, to think about the short term and see what, what is doable here and now. But I think it's also very important to look at the long term, um, you know, to the long term issues and the more systemic issues. As I said earlier, I think what, one of the things that we can't ignore is that digital poverty mm -hmm. is rooted in poverty itself. And this year, you know, in 2021, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Living Wage campaign, which started in East London with schools, churches, mosques, charities coming together to say, you know, why can't our kids go on school trips? That's because their parents can't afford it. Why can't we buy them proper shoes? That's because their parents can't afford it. So the issue that we talked about was poverty. So my, my message to government and to the private sector would be to mm. you know, pay workers the living wage. You know, some big companies like Google are paying the living wage to their workers, you know, £10.85 an hour in London. Some big companies, perhaps Microsoft, are only paying £8.72 an hour, which means that, you know, cleaners and catering staff in those big companies won't be able to buy devices for their children. So my big message is think about poverty, not just digital poverty, but poverty full stop. Thank you, Seb. That's really clear and really helpful. Kelly, can I come to you next? Sure. Um, so I'd build on what Seb said, really. I think when we're talking about the digital divide, we're talking about an issue that's so stark because many children are literally locked out of education right now and cannot get in. Um, and obviously, we all want children to get back to school and hopefully for more children, that's not too far away. But that won't, they won't stop being locked out when that happens for some of them. We know that there are many disadvantaged children who are much more likely to be left behind. So my main message to all of society would be once schools are back and the headlines move on and hopefully we can start to move through this pandemic and, and onto the recovery phase, let's not forget that, the damage that these few months has done, but also that this, these gaps existed long before and that we need a long-term solution to them. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yes, that's really clear. Thank you, Kelly. 
And Loic, can I come to you? Yeah. I mean, I think what we've seen in the last few weeks with the, with the rollout of the vaccine uh, has been quite inspiring and in showing what's possible when, um, when society and government gets behind the big challenges and mobilises behind that, uh, behind a really clear objective. And as both Kelly and Anne said, have said, uh, what we're looking at here is an issue of long-term vulnerability. And I, I, what I'd really love to see is, is a similar uh, drive to mobilise um, behind the objective of getting rid of that vulnerability, tackling that and bridging that divide um, so that next time society is under strain, uh, those fractures don't widen into the gulf that we've seen in the last year. Mm, yes, that's an excellent point. That's really helpful. Thank you. And um, finally, Chris, if you'd like to uh, to give us your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think the thing that immediately on my mind is that I think the genie's out of the bottle in terms of technology and education. And I don't think that we're going back. I, I think that you know too many of the people involved, whether it's pupils, parents, teachers, school leaders, kind of academy trusts, there, there, there are too many benefits that people want to keep of everything that people have experienced over the, the last year. And so, you know, the question then becomes about how do we make this into something that's a really long-term sustainable part of how we teach and access information. And so I sort of think, you know, Kelly's point about this being a long-term thing is sort of where that then takes you, that this needs to be part of, you know, we're all going to live in a world where technology is integrated into how we work and learn in education. And so that means that we're going to need different requirements and different things that mean this is becomes a high priority for how schools and pupils work together. So, but I don't think we're going back from here. I think there are too many positives um, and we need, I need to work on how we overcome the, the, the negatives and help close that digital divide. Yes, absolutely. And, and really embed those things that we've learned and, and make sure that we can make the most of them going forward. Right. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic to speak to all of you today and some really fascinating and important points raised. And uh, we really do encourage people to have a read of the report because there's some really important findings there that are going to be really helpful, I think, in, in understanding this issue and, and moving forward to, to positive changes in the future. Thank you so much to each of you for, for joining me today. It's been brilliant to speak to you and um, really great to hear your thoughts. Very grateful for your time. It's been Thank lovely you. to have you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fascinating. Thanks, Alex. Cheers. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Bye. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.